Can you prevent workplace bias before it starts? In some cases, yes, says Joan Williams, a law professor and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings. I'm Stephanie Francis Ford, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, she'll be sharing observations on how we can create what she calls bias interrupters at work. Professor, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Can you explain briefly for our listeners, what does bias interrupters mean? Bias interrupters are tweaks to an organization's basic business systems. For example, sourcing, hiring, assignments, performance evaluations, that kind of thing. These tweaks are, in an evidence-based way, designed to interrupt the constant transmission of implicit bias in workplaces as we know them. Okay. Uh, Can you give us an example of a tweak? A very, very simple tweak. There was one experiment by two behavioral economists that simply added the words, salary negotiable to a job ad and found that that two-word difference both sharply decreased the difference in the numbers of men and women applying for the job and sharply decreased the salary differential at which people were hired for the job. The reason that that works is because you probably heard, quote, women don't ask, that women don't negotiate as hard for starting salaries as men do. What you may not have heard is why that's the case. Women who do negotiate equally hard tend to be disliked and may be less likely to be hired. So by putting in those two simple words, salary negotiable, an organization is signaling to women it's okay to negotiate for starting salary here And they may also be thinking, gee, by extension, this sounds like a great job for me because it sounds like I wouldn't have to be constantly editing down my behavior in response to workplace gender bias. Oh, that's interesting. So it can appeal to all sorts of different personality types. Well, just the two words, right? Yeah, personality types, but also particularly the studies show that women who negotiate often encounter backlash. They're often penalized for negotiating. And those two words are signalizing to women, hey, you'll be able to negotiate just alongside the men. You won't be penalized for negotiating here. That's really interesting. Was there a moment, can you just kind of tell me, when did it occur to you? Is it something that you've been thinking about for a long time? Did it pop into your head? How did you get this idea? Well, I wrote a book with my daughter, Rachel Dempsey, who actually now is clerking for the Ninth Circuit. This was before she went to law school. It's called What Works for Women at Work. And we wrote the book because I was looking back over the past 30 years. When I started to work on women in the legal profession, 15% of law firm partners were women. As we speak today, 17% of equity partners or women. So that's not much progress. And about five years ago, I'd basically given up on organizational change. And so we wrote this book that shows women how to navigate successfully through workplaces shaped by subtle gender bias. But then I was talking to my editor at the Harvard Business Review after we had finished the book 
And she urged me to take the analysis that underlies what works for women at work and turn it into an organizational change model. And that's what gave rise to the bias interrupters approach. I see. I was curious as well. I mean, I think with the numbers you just mentioned, it's not a secret that women, for the most part, were not getting the same opportunities in the work environment as men. It seems like everyone admits it's a problem, but few people will admit that they're part of the problem or that they might have some gender bias. In some ways, is a bias in eruptors, is an idea of that. Is it a way to maybe gently work around people's biases and perhaps prevent issues before they come up? Yeah, I mean, what works for women at work provides women ways to navigate around and through people's gender biases. Bias interrupters are very different. Bias interrupters involve change to a hiring ad or an interview protocol or a performance evaluation system that is designed in a science-based way to interrupt gender bias. So let me give you an example. We're just about to launch a web page, the bias interrupters, and we're starting out with materials on performance evaluations. And so we have various resources. They're going to be open sourced for organizations. One of them is a handout that organizations can hand out to anyone who is asked to write a self-evaluation. Now, remember how women don't ask, they don't negotiate as much as men, they also don't self-promote as much as men. And the reason that they don't is because they sense gender bias in the environment. The studies show that women who engage in self-promotion often encounter prescriptive bias because women are expected to be modest, self-effacing team players. Men are expected to be competitive and ambitious. So if a man is self-promoting, he's fitting in to people's stereotype of the way a man should behave, competitive and ambitious. But if a woman is self-promoting, she is flouting people's stereotype of the way a good woman should behave, modest, self-effacing team player. And so if you simply ask people to provide performance self-evaluations, it's not unlikely what's probably going to happen is that the women are going to provide much more modest self-evaluations than the men. And this is a simple two-pager you can hand out to give everybody guidance about the proper way to fill out a self-evaluation. And by the way, that particular bias interrupter can be expected not only to help women, but also Asian Americans and class migrants, people born from non-professional families who have now become lawyers, for example. There are very strong modesty mandates, not only for women, but also for Asian Americans. And in blue-collar families, there are also strong modesty mandates. So that's a good example of how you can provide a fairly gentle tweak to an organizational system that holds the promise to interrupt transmission of implicit bias. So could you see a good manager getting one of these self-assessments and giving it back to the person saying, you know, you didn't say enough about all these great things you've done. You need to write more good things about yourself. 
I mean, I think at this point, this is not posted on the web, but it will be within a month. And I think at Mm -hmm. this point, a good manager would simply hand out this sheet to everybody along with the self-evaluation forms and say, here's some important tips on how to fill out a good self-evaluation. I see. I formed a working group where I brought together 20 social scientists with seven companies. And we are in the process of conducting experiments to pilot specific bias interrupters. And we're also in the process of building out concrete tools that managers and others can use in order to redesign basic business processes, tweaking them to interrupt the constant transmission of bias. I see. How is the legal profession responding to your work on this so far? Well, Michelle Coleman-Mays, who's the current head of the ABA Commission on Women, got very fascinated by this idea and approached me. And so, actually, we're just about to launch a survey of lawyers co-sponsored by Work Life Law, my organization, the ABA Commission on Women, and the Minority Corporate Counsel Association, because when work-life law works on implicit bias, we never only do gender. We always do bias based on race and a variety of factors. So we're just about to launch a survey to be given to lawyers to help pinpoint the specific ways in which the four patterns of gender bias that have been documented over and over again and the accompanying racial and other bias the ways those very specific patterns are playing out both in-house and in law firms. And we have put together those three organizations, the Bias Interrupters in the Legal Profession Working Group, that will be generating very, very concrete tools and best practices for interrupting implicit bias in the legal profession. And I know that sometimes it seems like when you talk about, maybe not stereotypes, but as you said, there's certain things that are expected in the workplace for women. I'm wondering, did you ever get pushback from people that say, you know, if you're going from that premises, you're just encouraging stereotypes? That seems kind of silly to me because we know that these expectations are there and they're very hard to get around. But I'm wondering if sometimes people say, well, you know, I like to negotiate and I'm a woman. Don't don't put something out there that says I don't. Do you get much pushback on that? All of these are tendencies that have been very well documented in not one, but in a whole huge literature that's 30 years old. Mm-hmm. So these gender biases, I mean, the different behaviors that women as a group often exhibit from men as a group, First of all, these are group differences, so they're tendencies, not absolutes. But these tendencies have been adopted over and over again. Of course, there's some women who are just going to go in there and then they're going to negotiate as hard as they can, and sometimes that will work out great, and sometimes they won't be hired because they're seen as somebody that you wouldn't want to work with. In a context, I sometimes call this the she's a shameless self-promoter. He knows his own worth. (laughs) So we're not going to make these biases and stereotypes go away by pretending they don't exist. 
that said, they describe tendencies, not absolutes. Right. And how, for people, especially lawyers who are in a position of power to help, what are your thoughts on convincing them what they can do with this and, and do it in a way that's meaningful? Well, that's the whole point of the bias interrupters effort. At Work Life Law, we run a membership program for organizations called Women's Leadership Edge. And we have a lot of tools that are available through Women's Leadership Edge, including what's called the Bias Interrupters for Managers workshop. That workshop introduces people to the four patterns of bias and gives them very, very concrete, low-key ways in which individuals, individual contributors and managers can interrupt very commonly documented patterns of bias. Let me give you an example. A very, very common experience among professional women is what my co-author Rachel and I call the stolen idea. And that's when uh, a woman will offer a suggestion in a meeting that will be kind of overlooked, and a man will repeat it, and suddenly it's brilliant, and he's given credit for it. When I talk to audiences of women, typically about two-thirds of them report that this has happened to them. So if that's happened, and you're running the meeting, how can you interrupt that pattern? You can say, and again, in a very low-key way, you can say, quite simply, you know, Tim, I'm so glad you picked up on Rebecca's idea. You've added something important. Maybe here's the next step and give Rebecca the opportunity to jump back in and also just in a low-key way without embarrassing anyone, pointing out that the idea initially was Rebecca's idea. Where people have used this strategy after attending the bias interrupters for managers workshop, what can happen is that if lots of people are using this, magically that stolen idea pattern begins to wither away. So that's a good example of what we call individual interrupters that anyone can use just in your daily travels without spending too much political capital. And do you find when you're out working to share this idea with people, are there times when you speak with a guy who runs a law firm and he says, you know, I've heard about this and I know it's a problem, but I have to say I just don't see it here. Do you hear that? And if so, what's your response? Well, the power of the Bias Interrupters for Managers training, which is the workshop that's designed for an audience of mixed men and women, is that it readily becomes apparent that some of these patterns have been experienced by women in the organization. For example, I was working with one large law firm, and what I do is I introduce a pattern of bias and then a specific example. I've given the example of the stolen idea, and then I stop and have people brainstorm how they can interrupt that pattern of bias in a table of six or eight. And if you've composed the tables carefully, it's going to be quite likely that someone at the table has actually had that experience and provides that real-time feedback. And, you know, sometimes nobody will have had the experience. And in some contexts, maybe that's 
just not an important kind of workplace interaction. These patterns of bias are extremely pervasive, but only 11% of the women I interviewed reported all four patterns of bias. Now, 96% of the women reported having encountered one or more, but these biases play out quite differently in different organizational contexts. And one of the things actually we're also just about to launch is an inclusion survey that organizations can use to pinpoint how, if at all, racial and gender bias is playing out in their organization as an analytical tool, along with next steps for how to interrupt bias in those specific contexts. Interesting. Do you think perhaps in the past decade there's been a bit of a cultural shift with how we address workplace bias? It seems like at one point we might have said, well, you know, when you do that, that seems very racist or sexist or homophobic. I almost wonder if what's being done now is perhaps a more kinder and gentler way to maybe not even confront but draw attention to this and maybe get people to behave in a different way. So they're not called out on it, but they're maybe gently pointed out that this could be an issue. Well, I mean, I think the standard toolkit for the past 10 years has been to found a woman's initiative or an employee resource group and provide additional resources to the diverse professionals. And that's a useful step, but if you have a very disproportionately low number of women or people of color high up in your organization, probably it's because subtle forms of bias are constantly being transmitted through everyday workplace interactions. And so fixing the women or the diverse professionals is just non-responsive. What needs to be fixed is the business system. And that's what bias interrupters do. Now, I think if you're talking to individual contributors in a mixed group of men or women, people of color and whites, what you're going to want to be giving people, I mean, there's two theories here. One is Google's, and Google has a, if you see it, call it out model. My assessment is, you know, that may work for Google, but in most environments, and certainly most legal environments, people have a limited amount of political capital, and they really are not going to be enthusiastic, most of them, about spending huge amounts of political capital calling out bias in a direct and perhaps harsh manner. That's just not practical. People have to husband their political capital in order to accomplish a lot of diverse career goals. And that's why in this particular context where you're talking not about organizational interrupters, about redesigning basic business systems, but about individual interrupters, things that individuals can do to interrupt bias, I think the focus is on very mild-mannered sort of interventions. Um, And you mentioned the book you wrote with your daughter, What Works for Women at Work. Your daughter is a millennial, and I'm curious, are you finding that women in her age group, are they encountering different issues of gender discrimination than the generations before then? And if so, what are some of those things, do you think? What has changed, if anything? Unfortunately, I think these things have changed remarkably little. That's why Mm. I wrote What Works for Women at Work. And I'll just give you 
one example from when Rachel was in law school, and she just graduated last year. She was at Yale Law School, and one of the professors said, let's form groups and have volunteers to take notes for each (laughs) class so that when people cannot attend the class, they'll have the notes. And everybody said, oh, Nifty Keen, let's do that. And then the professor sent around a sign-up sheet for who was going to sign up to be a note-taker and scrub up their notes and make them available to the whole class. And when the sheet came around to Rachel, virtually all of the women had signed up and virtually none of the men. Now, why is that? It's because the good woman is modest, self-effacing, helpful teen player. So the women were under informal pressures to sign up. The man to be reckoned with is competitive and ambitious. The men were under no informal pressures to sign up. So unfortunately, what has been documented over and over again is that these stereotypes are extremely resilient, and they are not changing, sad to say. That's why it's really important that organizations begin to redesign their business systems to start to correct for these stereotypes. If that became a widespread model, then the stereotypes would begin to change for the simple reason that they wouldn't be constantly being transmitted in everyday workplace interaction. I see. And I'm curious, with your background, how have you gone about teaching your daughter through the years not to sign up to be the the class wife or or whatever? Because um, you're right, oftentimes we are rewarded, if you can call it that, for doing that sort of work. How do you teach a child to say no and not get too much pushback about it, to say no in a meaningful way? Well, I mean, I think that's a delicate issue. I didn't have yeah. to I didn't have to teach Rachel that. <laughs> you did your job. <laughs> I mean, another, a similar situation that is extraordinarily common in law firms is that women end up, and you use the phrase yourself, Rachel coined the term doing the office housework. Um, The office housework is everything from doing administrative work, being the one to schedule the meeting, find the room, doing literal housework, ordering the lunch, doing emotion work, she's really upset, can you fix it, or doing undervalued work. For example, I was talking to a woman litigator in Silicon Valley in a corporate firm, well-known firm, and I said, hey, do women in your firm do the office housework? She immediately knew what I meant, and she said, you bet we do. We do the task lists and manage the paralegals. The men argue the motions, and they talk with clients. And that's a good example of an office housework phenomenon. Now, one of the things that's confusing, I think, to young women is that often they are praised to the skies for doing the office housework. Right. Because it's extremely convenient for everybody else to have them doing this dead-end work. So I think it can be very confusing, and young women need to recognize, and we tell them all the time through Women's Leadership Edge and otherwise, that even if you're being praised, you have to figure out whether what you are doing is the kind of thing that people actually get promoted to partner for because no one is going to pay you $800 an hour for doing a lot of these office housework tasks. And what we find time and again is that, of course, 
all junior lawyers have to do some of these tasks in the early years. And doing them efficiently and graciously is extraordinarily important. But what we hear time and again is that men kind of naturally get moved out of those tasks. After all, the perception is they're naturally competitive and ambitious. So, of course, you need to give him something that would represent a step up the ladder. Whereas women are often conceptualized as, oh, well, she's not ambitious. Her husband is out there. He could support her. And, you know, women aren't that ambitious. And meanwhile, the woman is maybe not negotiating as hard to get some of these career-enhancing assignments. And the reason they aren't is because the men don't have to negotiate. The assignments often happen, gravitate naturally towards the men. And if the women try to be insistent, it's often seen as evidence that they're very demanding or otherwise have a personality problem. But I think that it's very important to coach women to make sure that they're going out and getting career-enhancing assignments. And unfortunately, often they have to walk a pretty narrow tightrope between being seen as too demanding and therefore unlikable or being seen as somebody who only has pretty low-level skills, and therefore not competent. So what works for women at work gives women strategies in that kind of context. But of course, the real answer is to have firms having work allocation systems that don't constantly replicate this pattern of women doing the undervalued work and the office housework and the -the behind-the-scenes work and the routine work, and whereas men kind of naturally get more career-enhancing assignments. That's where we need bias interrupters in assignments. And that's actually going to be the next series of web pages that we unveil. That will probably be in two or three months. I was going to say, and that sounds like a great way to do the bias interruption, is have really think about who you assign the task to in a way that doesn't discriminate. With respect, that's an extremely individualistic model. I think what you're talking about is redesigning organizational systems so that they don't inadvertently provide an invisible escalator for a certain group. All right. That's everything I had for you today. Did you want to add anything else? No. Thank you for your interest. Of course. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.